uh, page 416. And when you find that, I must just stand on the reading of God's Word. Psalm 4, David writes, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the, the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time in the time that their corn and the wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. The title of the message tonight is Trusting Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome, worthy of our praise and devotion. Help us, O oh God, to to focus in this time on Your Word and what You have for us. Help us to, to trust Jesus. Father, I, I know we do. We're, we wouldn't be out tonight if we didn't. But Lord, there's always more uh, and there's always something coming in our lives that could challenge that trust. So strengthen us tonight through Your Word. Strengthen our hearts in Christ and in His grace and in Your goodness. Strengthen us so whatever whatever's coming, whatever happens in our life, we will be strong in You, the power of Your might, and we will be able to stand uh, against whatever this world or, or anything else may throw against us. Fill me tonight with Your Holy Spirit and give me a clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak Your words and Your ways for Your glory. Use this to strengthen us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and to draw us closer to Jesus, we ask in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So, Psalm 4, we're not 100% sure of the context. Um, it does seem from the writing, it was written during a time of conflict in David's life. Hardship, trials, those sort of things. And, and since David had so many, it could have been really any number of them. But many commentators, and I would say most commentators really, that I studied, seem to think this was also written during Absalom's rebellion like Psalm 3 was. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Psalms, he made an interesting statement. Uh, and what he said was, Psalm 3, if Psalm 3 and 4 go together, if they are both a part of the time of Absalom's rebellion, then probably what it was after, after the, the time of David's writing and after the, this was incorporated into a kind of the hymn book or the prayer book of Israel, then what they would do is that in the morning when they were having times of distress and times of trouble, in the mornings, they would read Psalm 3. And it would be a way to focus their hearts and their thoughts upon God despite their circumstances. Then in the evening, before they went to bed, they would read or they would, med- or they would quote Psalm 4. And again, it was a way to, to focus their hearts and to focus their minds upon God in a hard time as they went to bed that night. I like that idea that that it goes together in that way. And the idea that stands out to me as I read this psalm is the idea of trust. David is going through a hard time. Despite the hard time David is going through, 
in a variety of different ways. He states over and over again in this passage, he trusts God. Yes, trials and tribulations are there. Yes, there is conflict and issues going on in his life. However, none of that shakes his confidence. None of that shakes his trust. He trusts God. So the main idea for us, I want us to think on tonight, is this. No matter the circumstances of our lives, we can trust Jesus. But no matter the circumstances of our lives, we can and we should trust Jesus. And this psalm, it gives us four ways we can and we should trust Jesus, regardless of the circumstances of our lives. So first, we trust Jesus hears our prayers. Psalm uh, 4, verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, again, all through the psalm, you notice a bit of distress in David's tone. And in a time of distress, David calls upon the Lord. And really, this is a great thing about David. When you read not only David's psalms, but David's life, when David didn't know what else to do, David called on God. When he needed direction, what do I do at this point in my life, O God? He he called upon God. When the trouble surrounded him and the floods of life threatened to overwhelm him, David called upon God. And when he calls upon God, there's not really a sense of doubt or uncertainty, but there is a sense of urgency. It is fairly certain or is fairly urgent for David for God to hear him. That's why he starts off with, hear me when I call. Right, him saying, hear me when I call God, is not saying, God, I don't know that you always hear me. I don't know that you listen to my prayers all the time. Instead, it's kind of, Lord, this is a dire situation. I desperately need you. Please, oh God, listen as I pray. Now, notice he calls God the God of my righteousness. And this is a statement of humility. Right, as David cries out to God for help, He is not crying out to God saying, God, I've been such a wonderful person and I have been so faithful in my service and devotion to you. You should hear me and you should answer my cry. Instead, it's a statement of humility. Oh, God, I am only righteous because of you. I am only righteous because of who you are and what you've done in my life. Now, again, if this is indeed a psalm written after he is his struggle with Absalom, or during his struggle with Absalom, we know Absalom's rebellion came after David's sin with Bathsheba. So David was very well aware he was not in himself a righteous person. David was very aware he had no right to call on God simply because of his own goodness. He based his appeal for God to hear and answer his prayer in the fact God had made him righteous. God had made him acceptable and able to cry out. And then he goes on and he says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. So he's reminding himself of what God has done in the past. Uh, The word distress seems to carry with the idea of being Pressed into a corner. Uh, It seems maybe it's like you're pressed into a corner, but not just you're backed up and you can't move, but almost like being crushed. You're you're pushed into a corner and the pressure is still coming and you feel like it's going to just crush you and overwhelm you. And David said in times past when he felt 
pressed into a corner, when he felt as though he were overwhelmed, God had delivered him. He's reminding himself of what God had already done in his life. Now, this is one of the reasons I really like Psalm 4. And really, David overall, he says this over and over again in his Psalms, is that even in these times of hardship, even in these times of trials, David remembers He remembers what God has done. He remembers what God has done for him in the past. And and, and in some ways, what he does is he remembers in the past, so it will give him hope in the future. But he also remembers what God has done in the past just as a sense of encouragement, just as a, a way to focus himself on the goodness and the grace and the greatness of God. This, I think, is such an important aspect of going through hard times. When we go through difficult times, the easiest thing in the world to do is focus only on the difficult time. We focus only and completely on here's what's going on in my life. This is not right. This isn't happening. And we can forget just the sheer volume of goodness God has shown in our lives in the years leading up to this particular moment. So there, there needs to be within us a, an intentional looking and reminding ourselves of what God has done for us in the past. This helps us in our troubling times. This will be especially helpful when God's answer doesn't come right away. I mean, how many of us know in times of distress when we cry out to the Lord, the answer doesn't always come like a flash of lightning. And fix the problem. Sometimes we have to pray and endure and pray and endure and cry and pray and endure. And if all we can see is what's going on now and what's not going on now. And we forget everything that has come before. It will almost overwhelm us. It will almost destroy our faith. So even in that time we have to make a point to say yes this time is bad. God doesn't seem to be coming in and getting involved right at the moment like I would like. But look at all of this stuff God has done for me, God. I remember. Thank you for what you have done. And then lastly in verse 1, David says, Have mercy upon me. And again, hear my prayer. Again, by David crying out and saying, Have mercy, he, he is basing his plea not in his own goodness. He isn't saying, God, you owe me, now fix the problem. David is crying out and asking for God's mercy and God's grace in his time of need. And what I think is great about this is even though David is basing his plea on God's mercy and he realizes God owes him nothing, he is still confident God will hear his prayer and God will help him in his time of need. You know, David knew something we have to remember, and that is God never owes us anything. I mean, that that can be a hard statement, I think, for us. It kind of wells against the pride. Because if we're not careful, we can think, look at what I've done for God. Therefore, I put God in my debt and God, God owes me. I did my AB, so God should do his CD. And the reality of life. The reality of dealing with a holy, infinite God is we never, ever put God in our debt. We don't have time tonight, but if we were to go look at 
like Luke, maybe 17, we'd find Jesus telling the parable of the unprofitable servants. Anybody remember the story, the parable? Jesus says, he tells the disciples, he said, when you do your duty, just say I'm an unprofitable servant. Right? And what's led up to that is he's told them, he said, now, does the master of the house send the guy, the servant out to do in the field? And then when the servant comes in, the master say, oh, here, you sit down and I'll make your meal. And he says, no, no, he doesn't. He comes in from the field and the master sits down and says, now go fix my dinner and bring it to me. And at the end, after the servant has worked in the field and fixed the meal and brought it to him and cleaned up, what the servant is supposed to say is, I am an unprofitable servant who has merely done my duty. And that's us. The best we are is someone who has done our duty to a holy and a glorious and a great God. We never at any point put God in our debt. And so when we pray, we need to base it like David did on the mercy and the grace of God. Because everything God does in our lives and every act God does on our behalf is a testimony of mercy and grace and never the repayment of a debt of any sort. And that can sound like, if we're not careful, I shouldn't have a lot of confidence in my prayer because it's just mercy. It's not. I mean, if somebody owes me, I can be sure they'll pay me probably, right? But if it's just somebody wants to come up and hand me money, you can't always be sure that's going to happen. But it's the opposite in the kingdom of God. I think as believers, as disciples, we should be far more confident in the mercy of God than we are in any merit we could ever earn. What if God really gave us what we deserve? Who here wants what they deserve from God? I'll be honest with you. I do not. I am not worthy of the least of God's goodness and the least of His mercies. I do not under any circumstances want God to give me what I deserve. I want mercy. I want grace. And if I am basing my prayer on God, you are merciful, you are gracious, you are good. There is far more confidence in that. And God hears and will answer that than there is in, you know God, I read like 12 passages of 12 chapters of the Bible yesterday and, and I prayed for this amount of time and I shared the gospel this many times and Lord, you've seen how many sermons I've preached. You owe me. Man, if I had to go to God with that, there would be zero confidence in prayer. But I can have confidence in His mercy. I can have confidence in His grace. So we should trust Jesus. No matter the circumstances of our life, we, we can and we must trust Jesus Here's our prayers. Secondly, we trust Jesus has set us apart for Himself. Now in verse 2, David kind of addresses those who are opposing Him. How long, ye sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing or, or lies? Now the idea of what's going on in this passage, what David is talking about, 
is the people who are opposed to him, who have taken Absalom's side, they are, they are harassing him in a variety of ways. And David is speaking to them in this verse. Now, so the ways that they are harassing David is, one, they are ridiculing him. It says, um, you turn my glory into shame. Now, again, if this psalm was written after Psalm 3 as a part of Absalom's rebellion, then we can gain some insight into what it means that they were trying to turn his glory into shame. Psalm 3.3, David said the Lord was his glory. And so turning his glory into shame is probably a reference to Psalm 3.2, where it says, Many are thee, many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. But David's trust always, in all of his trials and tribulations, was God would come through, God would see him through. And what these people were saying is, they were saying, God is done with you, David. God has, has no more for you, David. You're, you're through as far as God is concerned. They were mocking him for trusting God. Oh, you trust God? How's that got you? How's that going for you at this particular moment in your life, David? Surely you can see God is done. So David's asking, how long are you going to keep mocking me? Secondly, David confronts them about their, their loving vanity or worthlessness. The word vanity in the King James, it means basically something that is worthless. Something that cannot satisfy our desire. Something that is uncertain or, or it appears to be one thing, but it, it will actually be something else. So probably, I think, Looking at this, again, as, as a part of Absalom's rebellion in that time, this is a dig at, at their ambition. Right? Why, why would you take Absalom's side over David's side? You hope Absalom wins. And then if Absalom wins, he'll remember you took his side in the rebellion and he will reward you. Right? They were wanting some sort of worldly promotion, some sort of success. Or wealth or power within the kingdom of Israel. They had an agenda. And they hoped Absalom would fulfill that. And David says, no, what you're hoping for, it's vanity, it's worthless. And then he says they seek after leasing in the King James, but that means falsehood. There was lies they were saying about David. They were seeking after false accusations to make about him in order to break uh, David's influence on other people. This would be very similar to what the religious leaders did to Jesus. And what the false teachers did to Paul. So what did David trust in? As all as these people, as they mocked him. As they turned against him for their own gain. As they sought and, and kind of promoted lies about him. What was David's trust? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself, the Lord will hear when I call. David says they may get ahead for a time. They can mock him for a time and there's nothing he can do about it. But they need to do this knowing that really, in, in essence, what he's saying is God was on his side. God had chosen David. Right? Isn't that the story of God... Is the one who took David out of the sheepfold and, and made him a warrior and then made him the king. And, and that's what he's reminding them of. I didn't become king through, I didn't kill Saul and take over the throne. God, God 
did this. God had set me apart and God has called me to this. And your attacks upon me, well, they don't change anything. And have you ever been in a situation where people treated you as they were treating David here? Where they, they mocked you, maybe for your faith in Jesus, for your trust in Him, or for the way you were going to live for Him in your devotion. Or where someone was willing to do whatever it took to be promoted. And if that meant they stepped on you in the process, then, then so be it. Or someone was gossiping about you or lying about you and telling stories they knew to be false. If you've ever been in a situation along those lines, you know what David is going through and how David feels at this point. So what do we do? What do we trust in when it seems like the people are against us? Well, we trust in the same thing David did. That the Lord hath set apart for Himself those who are godly. And there's one passage, I think, that really shows us what it means God has set us apart for Himself. So turn to Romans 8, uh, page 863. We have to cover this quickly. I have actually far more notes in this part than I can cover in the time, although the clock is stopped, so I actually have all the time in the world. Romans 8 and verse 30. Paul writing, he says, Moreover whom he, God, did predestinate, them he also called, and, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. And the picture in, Saul, in Romans 8 and 30 is essentially the what it talks about in Roman or in Philippians 1 6, the God who began a good work in us, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God, God called us, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, is what the Bible says. And then he called us. And when we answered, he justified us. And then he's in the process of sanctifying us, and then in the certain day will come and he will glorify us with Christ. And remove all sin and condemnation from us. So the God who began this work in us, He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't stop. Now what does that mean though on a practical level when it feels like the world is against us? Well that's what the rest of the chapter talks about. In verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Right. If, if all this is true and God is on our side because He has called us and He has justified us and He will glorify us, who can be against us? And, and the answer really is no one that matters. Right? And, and that's what He goes on to say. He that spared not His Son but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? But right? He's saying if God went through all of all of the cross and all of Jesus' death and the horror involved in that to, to save you, to justify you. He will do everything else. You can trust it. You have been called and set aside by God for God through the blood of Christ. And you can hang on to that. The God who did that for you will do the rest just as He said. But it gets better. Who shall lay anything... To the charge of God's elect. Those who God has called and set aside for Himself. Right? So all the world is laying a charge against us. And all the world is saying what fools we may be. And, and saying all of these maybe negative things about our character. And, and all of this stuff against us. Who 
lays the charge against us as God's people. Well, not God. Because He's the one who chose to justify us. Okay, then who condemns us? Who is it that determines and says, you're going to hell. God is done with you. God is kicking you out. And He is forever through with you. Who is it that does that? Well, it's, it's not Christ. Because He died for you and is risen again. And is at the right hand of God right now making intercession for you. How great is that? No matter what's going on in your life, God has set you apart for Himself. And a part of that is that Jesus does not condemn you because He died for you and He is actively at this moment praying for you. So then, what will separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, what is it that happens in our life that demonstrates once and for all God is done with us? How can we, when we look and it seems all the world is against us and our life seems to be in shambles, can we say at that point, in that moment, God is done with us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? Now, we don't have to get into long, drawn-out explanations of what those words mean. We kind of know what all of those things are. And we would say, no matter what, our definition, definition, definition of a bad day is a day when we were tribu- we're going through tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword. That would qualify as a bad day. That would qualify as the worst sorts of days we would experience. So do these things demonstrate we have been separated? From the love of Christ. That God is through with us. Nay. In all these things. We are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. No. That those things do nothing to testify. Of whether or not God has got his hand upon us. They do nothing to testify. About whether or not God is for us. Or against us. They do nothing to testify. That God is done with us, as anyone may say. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross settles the answer, is God for us or is God against us? The reality is God is for us as His people. He is for us. There are no circumstances that come into our lives that dictate or demonstrate God's displeasure with us. Or dictate or demonstrate God is done with us. Do you see how you can be encouraged and confident by knowing you have been set aside by Jesus for Jesus. The hardships and the trials, the difficult circumstances, the personal attacks. I, I don't know there's any way to get through this life without that sort of stuff. Life is hard. We live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things happen. And you and I are going to be a part of the bad things that happen. 
And sometimes the bad things are going to happen because we have made bad decisions. And sometimes the bad things are going to happen because somebody else has made bad decisions that affects us. And sometimes they're just going to happen because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things just happen. And none of that None of that demonstrates or testifies God is done with us. None of that says God no longer loves us. Jesus has severed us from the kingdom. None of it. And this is important. Because if we believe the circumstances of our life demonstrate God's love for us and Christ's acceptance of us, then our our being trusting in that, our hoping in that, our being confident in that is going to go up and down. Sometimes you're going to be really prosperous and the world is going to be a wonderful place and everything's going to work exactly the way it should. Woo! God loves me today. But then we could wake up tomorrow and our cars have been vandalized and we've been fired from our jobs and the test result we took took, comes back really negative and oh my gosh, God hates me now. And so we live like this and that is not gospel Christianity. God is for us. Cross demonstrates that. We have been set aside by Jesus for Jesus. And so no matter the circumstances that come into our lives as believers, as those that God has called and justified and will glorify, we can say the circumstances are miserable. But I have still been set aside by Jesus for Jesus. And nothing Nothing now and nothing to come can separate me from the love of God which was revealed in Christ Jesus, my Lord. No matter the circumstances of our lives, we can and we must trust Jesus has set us apart for Himself. Turn back to Psalm 4. So we we trust Jesus hears our prayers. We trust Jesus has set us apart for Himself. And then we trust Jesus in our actions. So David says in verse 4, stand in awe and sin not. Now, there are different explanations and ideas of what it means when the King James says stand in awe. Some take it to mean tremble in fear of the Lord and so don't sin. And others take it and say, because the word stand in awe literally means tremble. It's one word in the Hebrew and it means to tremble. So you stand in awe and you tremble before God. And therefore you don't sin. And then others say it means to tremble with like anger. Right? Do you ever get so angry you just shaking over it? Some say it means that. And, and though you get angry, don't sin. Now, my personal preference is the first idea. We tremble in the presence of God and we don't sin. But I do not believe that is the correct understanding. If you're familiar with Ephesians 4.26, the Apostle Paul says we're to be angry and sin not. And that is a quote from the Old Testament. And it is, in fact, this particular psalm. Psalm 4 and 4 is what Paul is quoting. But he's quoting from the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so, your your translation, unless you have a King James, probably does not say stand in awe and not sin not. If it's a more modern translation, it probably says sin not or something like that. There are some which would say tremble. But it does seem 
What this means in the tremble is to tremble in anger. Don't let this anger draw you into sin. I think David is talking about himself in this. He is angry. Wouldn't you be? And in his anger, he is tempted to sin, but he is not going to. He is not going to act out in his anger. Now, what's important for us to see in this, I think, is a couple things. One, we're going to get angry, right? I mean, I don't know how to get around that either. Some things are are worth getting angry about, and there is a righteous indignation that is godly and right. But there is also an unrighteous anger, which even though we want to be godly people, even though we love Jesus and we want to be spirit-filled and spirit-led, and it just happens sometimes. I mean, you, you probably don't get that way, but, but I do. There, there are just times when I'm angry. Something makes me angry. Gosh, there's just times when I'm angry. I don't even know why. But that anger, in and of itself, isn't a sin. Otherwise, it wouldn't say, and sin not. The anger is just like any other temptation. The thought goes through your mind. That's not the sin. The sin is when you act on the thought. The anger comes upon us and that's not the sin. It's the actions we take in that anger that's the sin. Right? So it would be okay in the context of here. It would be okay to be angry if someone lies about us and gossips about us. But it's not okay... To end that anger, to go beat them down and put them in the hospital. But it's okay to be angry if someone tells lies about us or our family, but it's not okay to go and tell lies about them. It's okay to be angry if someone betrays a trust you gave to them, but it's not okay to then go and betray their trust to someone else just to hurt them. It is okay to be angry. To be even so angry we tremble with our rage. What is not okay is to act in that anger. And let it control us in our words or our deeds. So what do we do when people hurt us and we feel the kind of anger that makes us tremble? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's Romans 12, 17 and Romans 12, 19. Now, if I were to go around and say, hey, do you believe that is the inspired word of God, those two verses? We would all say, yeah, sure. I mean, that's, the Bible is the inspired word of God and it's authoritative and all in which it speaks is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. All true Christians everywhere in the world of all generations have believed that. And they believe those verses are God's word to us today, right now. But, here's the test of that statement of faith. I believe the Bible is God's word. Do I believe the Bible is God's words enough that when I am trembling in anger, I will recompense, I will not get even with anyone who has done wrong to me? Do I believe it enough to do what it says? Do I believe it enough not to get even and to leave it to God? To leave it in His hands and for God to say, if they need to be punished, I'll punish. You just trust me. And that's kind of what David's saying is. I 
I'm angry. Trembling in anger. But I'm not going to get even myself. Now, David, I mean, we, if you know familiar with the story of Absalom's rebellion, David did that. Right? When David fled the city, there was a, 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 a member of the tribe of Benjamin who cursed him and threw dirt at him. He is the king. He has mighty warriors who will kill at his command. And this guy is cursing him and throwing dirt at him. And one of David's mighty men says, let me go kill him, your majesty. Who does this flea think he is? And David says, no. Perhaps God has sent him to curse me. And if, this is a rough paraphrase, and if God thinks I deserve to be justice, to be done to this guy, then, then God will do it. Absalom rebelled against David, slept with his concubines on the top of the castle so everyone could see what he was doing. And as David sent his armies out, he told the generals, deal gently with the boy Absalom for my sake. Gosh, even David's life with Saul. How many times did David have the opportunity to kill Saul when he fled from Saul and say, I will not touch God's anointing. If God wants to kill him, God will do it. But I'm not going to. David's trust in God, it wasn't an abstract idea. It wasn't something like, this is a a pretty picture of what we should do. It was something he lived. He truly did this. Do we? Do we trust Jesus enough that even though we are furious and shaking with rage, we will not act in that anger? We will not seek vengeance. We will not repay evil for evil. We will trust the Lord. And He will do what needs to be done to those who have harmed us. That's where the rubber meets the road. David goes on. And he says, Commune with your own heart upon your bed and and be still. The idea of communing with your heart, it seems to be examine ourselves to see if we have contributed to the problem. Right? Because he's talking about on your bed and be still. That's what David seems to be saying is, not only am I not going to sin in my anger, I'm going to sit alone in the quiet where it's just me and God and I'm going to wonder if I played a part of this problem. He's not going to go to Joab and say, Joab, do you think this is anything in my fault? No, no. He's not going to go to anyone who will confirm that David is perfect and not the problem. Instead, he is going to just sort of pray, be alone with God and say, God, have I contributed to this problem in any way? Am I the cause of this issue? Show me if I am and, and I'll do what needs to be done to fix it. And again, this is a, a trust issue. Because in, you know, in the middle of conflict, when we're in a conflict with another person, how many of us take the time to really think if we played a part in causing the conflict? I mean, I, again, I don't. Typically, if I just play it over in my head, I'm, I'm so innocent in all that happened. There's almost like a halo forming and flying over my head. And there's horns coming out of the other person that's caused the conflict. It's, it's all them and it's not me. I am just the innocent victim of their evil and their hatred and their carnality. But how often is that actually true? How often is that actually right? Well, in my life, I would say never. Never. I, I, I may well... Maybe it was their fault initially. But did I respond in sinful, wrong ways? This is a trust issue. Do I trust 
God will show me what I've done. Do I trust God enough to go and make amends as Jesus has told me to do? Do I trust Him enough to entertain the idea perhaps I'm at least partially to blame for this conflict and what do I need to do to make it right? And then He says, offer the sacrifices of of righteousness. Put your trust in the Lord. Of course, you know the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was huge, massive part of everything. And again, essentially what he's saying is he's going to continue to make those sacrifices. He trusts God. He's still going to offer the sacrifices. If he's not back in, in the palace at the right time, he's still going to make his sacrifices, give his free will offerings, and those sort of things. Now, we, we don't really make sacrifices like that. Um, well, we, we don't really... We don't ever make sacrifices like that. Do not bring your animals up here. I will not be killing them on the altar. Or that we just don't do things like that. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our atonement. That doesn't mean we don't make sacrifices. We just don't make living animal sacrifices. Right? So, for instance, the Bible says in Hebrews 13 and 15, we're to offer the, the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13 and 16 says we're to offer the sacrifice of helping those in need. Romans 12, 1 says we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, all of those could be and probably should be seen as the sacrifices of righteousness. So the point for us is even in the conflict, even in the hardships, even in the trials, we just need to keep doing what we know God wants us to do. We need to keep helping others. We need to keep gathering with other believers and worshiping Him. We need to keep reading our Bible. We need to keep serving Jesus and just doing what He wants us to do. Now that's easier said than done. It's just doggone difficult to be faithful in doing what Jesus has called us to do when life is hard. But, what demonstrates our trust in Jesus more to a lost and an unbelieving world. Our service and devotion and faithfulness to Jesus when all is right in our world or when they know our world is collapsing around us and yet we are still going to get up and faithfully serve our Lord. Which one demonstrates trust in Jesus? Well, they both do, really. But the world can understand serving Jesus when life is well. But they can't really understand serving Jesus when life is miserable. It's an act of faith. It is trust to keep living for Him and doing His will. Even when things are hard. David's trust in God was not theoretical. It wasn't just made up of words. It was a very practical, rubber meet the road, demonstrated in his life kind of trust. This is the kind of trust in Jesus we need to have. And so... No matter the circumstances of our life, we, we, we can and we must trust Jesus in our actions. And then finally, trust Jesus is all we need. I like the clock because I still have 15 minutes to preach. Trust Jesus is all we need. There will be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. And it says many were asking this. We don't know who for sure these people were. But just the context and the way David is speaking to me, it leads me to believe he's talking about his people, those on his side. So things go on 
and the, and the rebellion is bad, and Absalom seems to be the king, and they've taken David's side. Now, what good can come from something like this? Who can get us out of this terrible mess we're in? Uh, according to, or where will our help come from? And in one of my commentaries said the tense in the verb, there are many that say and say, it is not they said it once, but they just kind of said it over and over again. So what it seems is David's people were beginning to become discouraged. This had gone on longer than they anticipated. They, they didn't expect it to be this difficult. What good is going to come from this? Will we ever get to go home? Who is our help in this? What are we going to do? And they just kind of go on and on and on. And it seems they may be on the verge of giving up. But David has an answer. Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. David knows it's God who is the help and who is the one who will turn good out of this. And it is God who will help them in their time of need. He wants God to to lift up his countenance upon them. And it really just means God more or less kind of look upon them and, and to smile. And for them, I think for the people to know what David knows. David knew God was for them. David knew God was watching. David knew God was there and present. And he wanted them to know the presence of God. David's discouraged followers in that moment needed to know God was with them. And so long as God was with them, they would be okay. For David, what mattered most was God. He said that in in Psalm 3, again, if these are connected. He had lost his palace. He had lost all of these things. But God was his glory. He was fine so long as God was with him. He goes on in verse 7 and says... That God had put gladness in his heart more than in the time that the corn and their wine increased. Now, keep in mind, this is an agrarian society. An agrarian society where there is no like no side jobs. You're a farmer, you're a rancher, that, that's it. That's all you do. There's no crop insurance. If the crops fail, you starve. That's just, you're probably going to have to sell yourself into slavery to pay your bills and to continue to move on. So when there was a big crop, and when there was lots of corn, and when the new wine was flowing, that was a time of great rejoicing. That was a time of great happiness in their life. And what David says is God. God put more gladness, more joy in his heart than in the times when there was a tremendous harvest. God gave David greater joy and greater gladness than anything the world would have to offer. I think part of what we have to notice here is the broad brush in which David paints in this passage. He isn't saying God gives him more gladness than all the bad things of the world. If we would understand that, that would make sense to anyone. God is better than bad things. That's not what David says. God is better than everything. God is better than the good things. God is better than the bad things. God is better than anything this world offers him. So David even had joy in the midst of the trial because he knew God was with him and God gave him greater gladness than all the stuff he may have lost and may never get back. And the result of God being with David in this way was David had peace. He laid down and he was in peace and he went to sleep. For the Lord made him to dwell in safety. The trial hadn't vanished. Absalom had not repented and 
submitted himself to David. He didn't know how things were going to turn out. But he could lay down, he could go to sleep because God was with him. And as long as God was with him, that's all that really mattered. He could lose everything else as long as he had God. Now, to me, I think this is the hardest part of the message, maybe. I mean, it's hard to trust Jesus in our actions. I know that. But to, to trust Jesus is all we need. That's a hard statement. I mean, it's easy enough to say. We, we know the answer. I mean, we could probably point to lots of passages in the Bible that talk about that idea of Jesus being the greatest good there is in our lives. We know the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews, they joyfully suffered the plundering of their goods because they knew what Jesus was giving them and, and they had Jesus and that was better. Same could be said for Paul. Paul's suffering in his life. And the, the difficulties he went through, the early church and all they went through, they, they knew Jesus was better. They knew Jesus was better than the world and the stuff and everything else that came with it. But the question for us is... Jesus enough for us. If our world collapsed tomorrow, we lost our job, someone close to us dies, we go bankrupt, our house is foreclosed upon, our car is destroyed by a meteor, if everything in the world turns against us tomorrow, but we have Jesus, is He enough? thing is, we know the right answer, don't we? We know what we're supposed to say. But is the right answer the real answer? And, and honestly, I, I, don't, I don't know that we can say yes when things aren't bad and Jesus is all we have. Because that sounds, well, it sounds pretty... Glamorous, not glamorous isn't the right word, glorious. Yes. I am sanctified. If I lost everything tomorrow but had Jesus, I would have enough. But when we say that, we really don't think we're going to lose everything tomorrow. And in the midst of losing everything like Job did, would, would we be able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know. We, that's one of those things we have to wrestle with. And we have to nail down on a personal level. Because there very well could be a day. The world turns against us in such a way we lose everything. But Jesus. And we need to have an idea before then of whether or not Jesus will be enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we want to be a people who trust Jesus regardless of the circumstances in our lives. And Lord, we pray, make us to know Jesus hears and cares. I mean, Lord, we know it from the Bible. The, the passages that talk about it are so numerous. Lord, there is something about experiencing His presence in our prayer time to, to just let us know, I'm here. I care. I know.
Help us, Lord, to trust. Jesus has set us aside for Himself. Sort of prosperity gospel is is so common in our culture. If we're not careful, we will believe a, a measure of it. We believe your favor is always seen in ease and comfort and prosperity. We don't often realize that we are more than conquerors, even in times of great trouble and great tribulation. Make us to know we are yours. You have chosen us. You have called us. You have saved us and you will complete it through to the end. And the circumstances of our life do not, do not change that. Make us to trust Jesus in our actions in very practical ways. No matter what's going on in our lives, our faithfulness doesn't waver. No matter what's going on in our lives, we we surrender to You and to Your Word and we let You have the last word on what needs to be done. And make us to trust Jesus is enough. He's all we need. Lord, open our minds to better understand how, how good great, how worthy, how marvelous You truly are. So we can, can be like Paul in a Roman prison, not knowing what's going to happen to say to live as Christ, to die is gain. Make us that kind of a people we ask in Jesus' name, for His sake. Amen.